Welcome back to the 213th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how the narrative about the antidepressants, the SSRIs, is kind of falling apart after some more analysis, uh, the pushback against SAT and ACTs and how that's also falling apart and some interesting breakdown of what's going on there, as well as uh, illegal immigrants may be able to vote in the primaries in Arizona. So we'll see how that one pans out. We'll talk about that. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, you know the movie Limitless. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Definitely a good movie. But do you know the NZT pill, that beautiful little uh, pill that gives you access to all the functioning of your brain, all the deep recesses of your memory, any information you ever stored, uh, makes you feel like you're operating efficiently, so on and so forth. If that was an actual drug, and you, the side effects are exactly the same, you knew the side effects, would you still would you still take it? Would you still take the advantages it gives you with all those downsides as well? Uh, I think it's interesting, and I think it also, the answer that you give is evocative of the culture that we live in, and this uh, reticence to take drugs in order to solve certain issues that we have, or to even just give us a boost in certain situations. So, well, I mean, in that case, we know about the Adderall epidemic in colleges, where students are taking them so they can study longer, so on and so forth. Anything that can give them the edge, even if it's a chemical drug, they'll do it. So, on that topic, let's jump to our first article that comes from counterpunch.org. The headline reads, Scientific Misconduct and Fraud, the Final Nail in Psychiatry's Antidepressant Coffin. So, antidepressants have become very, very popular throughout the late 80s, early 90s, the rest of the 2000s. A lot of people, I don't want to say a majority of people, but a lot of people, especially in younger generations, are on some form of SSRI or SNRI, and these are meant to stabilize the brain chemistry and to really bring you back to a normal state. That was the argument when they were first put out there. Well, the data is finally being reported on, and it turns out that that is not actually a great solution to any form of depression that somebody may face. And this is not 100% true. There are certain cases where these drugs are very effective and they help people. But a lot of people who are experiencing depression, it would probably go away within a year if it was left to its natural ends. And some people would argue, well, hey, no, that's not that's not okay. We can't leave it for a year. I mean, some people, that's a torturous year. Do we really want people to live in pain? But the question is, are we going to give them drugs that actually work, or are we going to give them something that will make them feel better just taking it, and the side effects that come along with it aren't as, you know, beneficial as a placebo pill? And yes, what I was referring to is just taking it could have a placebo effect. Uh, there's actually some interesting research about that, and I want to jump to the first quote from this article that highlights what I'm talking about here. 
Quote, researchers have long known that any antidepressant drug is little more effective than a placebo in a majority of trials, shown to be less effective than a placebo in some studies, and generally found to be clinically negligible with respect to depression or remission, while often resulting in severe adverse effects, for example, resulting in a high percentage of sexual dysfunction, then depression remission. However, for nearly 20 years, psychiatry and big pharma have told us that while one antidepressant may not work for a majority of patients in the real world, doctors provide patients who have been failed by their initial antidepressant with another antidepressant. And if that fails, still another. And that is this real-world treatment and apparently is successful for nearly 70% of patients. This narrative has been repeatedly reported by mainstream media, including the New York Times in 2022. So, it's very interesting when you hear this 70% number. I mean, that sounds like a great success rate among people who are dealing with the effects of depression. Oh, 70% are going to reach uh, remission. Well, the question then becomes, uh, you know, is that one drug? Because they mention is it's actually multiple drugs in the real world. You know, if the first one doesn't work, the doctor says, oh, let me put it on, you know, on a second one. So how many does it normally take to get to the point where you're getting that 70% remission? Well, it turns out it's four phases of a uh, system, basically. There's phase one, which is three months, two, three months. Phase four and three are also three months. So basically, throughout the course of a year, you are giving them four different antidepressants. And guess what happens in the course of a year, at least from what some of the studies are indicating? Oh, actually, people will desist naturally after a year. So maybe, maybe that doesn't actually have anything to do with the SSSR, SSRIs or the SNRIs. It actually has to be the natural progression of a year of depression and having the remission just naturally happen after that amount of time. So let's talk about why the 70% is not merely just a mistake, but the author is even claiming here, like they said in the title, it's actually misconduct on the part of the researchers. Quote, however, this nearly 70% is based on scientific misconduct. Psychologist Ed Piggott and his co-research published a destruction of the STAR-D trial in 2010. So the STAR-D trial is the initial trial that gave these results of, wow, over 70, almost 70% of people uh, get to remission on these different antidepressants. And, quote, and then with access to more of the study's data published in a reanalysis of STAR-D in the journal BMJ in 2023, concluding, quote, in contrast to the STAR-D's reported 67 cumulative remission rate after up to four antidepressant treatment trials, the rate was 35% when using protocol-stipulated HRSD, or Hamilton Rating Scale for Depression, and inclusion in data analysis criteria. So what they're actually getting at here is they excluded people who, or sorry, they included in the trial people that didn't actually meet the proper threshold for the clinical definition of depression, as well as people that dropped out, they used the statistics that they had gotten for the rest of the group. So say that uh, 70% of the group reached remission, 
uh, in their trial. And I'm not saying that's the actual number, but just let's imagine it. So 70%, so 70 out of 100. And we had uh, 100 people drop out. Instead of saying, okay, we can't assume anything about them, they dropped out of the trial, they applied that exact rate to the people that dropped out, saying, well, if it, it happens to be the rate within the rest of the population, so we're going to assume that it applies to the people that drop out, that also boosts the numbers a little bit one way or another rather than not counting them. So it's, a, it's interesting to say the least. That means they would say an extra 70 people actually went into remission. Even though those people dropped down, they had no actual results. Whether or not you think that's a valid statistical tool to apply that to them, that is just misconduct because you're assuming the results that you would get from people that dropped out. You have no information, no data from them, or at least you have no data from the end result of the trial. For all you know, they could have gone back into a deeper depression after they said they had remission in stage two. So I think that it does come to the level of misconduct, and it definitely, definitely needs to be examined further, especially when this narrative has gone so far and wide in the overall population. So then why would the authors, you know, use these sort of tactics? Why, if they were doing this not just of, you know, goodwill and trying to make sure the results were as accurate as possible and just doing it in a flawed way, what could be their motivation? Well, some of the authors actually had a financial stake in Pfizer, and this was pointed out in the study. It's in one of the disclosures. So, and that's one of the producers of the antidepressants, I believe. Zoloft is the one that's produced by Pfizer. So, there is this idea that okay, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to hurt my my company here. That's what the author's trying to really point out, trying to highlight that these people had an interest in making sure that these SSRIs looked good because they are a good segment of Pfizer's uh, portfolio when it comes to getting money from patients. Now, it wasn't as large of a section of the portfolio in the 1990s when this study was initially conducted, but still, any little bit of leaning, you know, you don't want to hurt the stock price if you own some stock in that company, so on and so forth. So, I've been saying this whole time that, oh, well, you know, natural remission is very high. And you're probably thinking, Alex, you have not quoted anything. You have not given the information for that. You're just pulling something out of your butt. No, I do want to jump to this last quote that I'm going to read from this article that highlights the natural remission rates for people with depression. So, quote, the recovery rate from these non-medicated depressed patients was tracked, and after one year, 85% of them recovered. The study authors concluded if as many as 85 depressed individuals go who go without somatic drug treatments spontaneously recover within one year, it would be extremely difficult for any intervention to demonstrate a superior result than this. So... That, that's a pretty striking quote, uh, and I don't disagree. The idea that you have to let things take their natural progression, the, especially when it comes to, I don't want to say mental illnesses, because there are certain mental illnesses that are not solved by just letting it run its course. But in this situation with depression, I think it's, we have a few different issues. I think depression is overdiagnosed. You can even see that in the study that was using people that didn't reach the clinical threshold of depression, but they were included in the study anyway. So I think there's this, this need to give people an answer. And 
sometimes when they're just sad, you know, for good reason, but they're just sad, some people either overinflate their different symptoms or what they see as a problem when they're reporting it to the doctor, or the doctor reads into it a little bit and they diagnose them with depression because they want to provide help and be kind and not let their patients be in pain. I think those are all factors. And then also on top of that, instead of just letting people who are depressed go through it and deal with it for that year and then desist, 85% of them at least, uh, doctors want to provide a, a quick fix. They want to be seen as doing something, not just for their patients, not just for the people that they get their money from when it comes to prescribing drugs, but also for themselves. They don't want to sit there and say, oh, I'm not doing anything for them. They want to have an active role. And instead of taking the perspective that I'm actually doing something by making sure that I'm not prescribing them an SSRI or an SNRI, these very addictive antidepressant drugs, but uh, I'm going to sit back and make sure that they are going to be healthy. I'm going to make sure that there's no intervention in their treatment and we're going to do it naturally. We're going to let this desist and I'll be there with them. That's one way of being active, but doctors don't see it that way. They see, oh, no, we have to prescribe. Our job is to prescribe. Our job is to fix. And this is something, while it may not work, this could be a fix, and it could be a little bit quicker, and we want to get our patients out of pain. I think that's part of the mentality in doctors nowadays. There's this need for immediacy. There's this need for, we've talked about this before on the podcast, more instant gratification, quick fixes rather than prolonged hard work. And yes, having depression for a year, and let's be clear, the desistant rate at a year was 85%. That doesn't mean everybody lasts a year. Some people could have made it six months. But any time with depression is not fun. It sucks. But sometimes you have to deal with it. You have to gruel through it. And if you don't want to deal with the risk of SSRIs, SNRIs, uh, sexual dysfunction, addiction, things like that, then you may just have to Go through the mud. You may just have to crawl, and you have to deal with all the crap that comes your way, but you will come out the other side stronger, and you'll come out the other side happier. And I think that we should take that perspective on a lot of things rather than just prescribing uh, drugs. Uh, this is also goes for people with ADHD. I'm not, I do believe there are exceptions for terrible depression, genuine, like, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, depression that is chronic or people, I was going to say ADHD, and people who don't necessarily have the ability on their own to even try to concentrate. But I think that number is a lot lower than we're actually making it out to be. And I think even pushing through some of the symptoms of ADHD and the easy distractedness and the willingness to put in the effort to become better, I think that is something that we need back in our culture. And this easy fix drug mentality, I talked about it in a Twitter tirade yesterday, it is degrading us as a society. It is, once again, pushing us towards instant gratification rather than what life is, a long, long haul where we are constantly improving, we are constantly being humbled, and we are working for the betterment of ourselves and the people around us. So that's just me. Let's jump to our second article that comes from Counterpunch as well. I know a lot of Counterpunches today. And the first one, I agreed with most of what they were saying for the most part. And uh, the second one, I'm I'm not so much agreeing with most of the points that they make in this one. Some of them are, are valid and some of them 
I really feel like they need a little bit of pushback. So the headline reads, the SAT and ACT are back with a vengeance. So you may have heard of this conversation that's been going around about the SAT and ACT again. There have been lots of lots of podcasts that I've heard out there. Now that uh, affirmative action is gone, done and dusted in the dustbin of American history, there is this conversation about how to ensure that the people who are most deserving of going to these colleges do while also trying to still bring in the people that are normally underrepresented in these colleges. And there are people on one side who are saying bring back the standardized test has kind of lost its relevance in some colleges and universities over the last few years. And there are other people who are saying, no, no, keep it out. We need to go on more... Uh, I don't want to say subjective metrics, but different metrics than a standardized aptitude test or something that equates to an IQ test or these hardline numbers. We need to look at each situation uh, differently, look at what each person brings to a university, so on and so forth. But I think that when we're talking about the SAT and ACT, we are making it too simplistic. The ACT and SAT does hold a lot of weight, and it should hold a lot of weight, but it is only one piece of the pie. If you're looking at a pie chart, I'd say the SAT score, ACT score, maybe 40%, 50% of the pie. Schools aren't only worrying about that, but it does give them a good indicator of where that student is sitting among the national population. And the other argument, which the article is not necessarily a fan of, because they're saying, oh, well, it's going to promote students in very particular schools again who can achieve these higher grades, so on and so forth. But the other thing that a standardized test allows these schools to do, if they can get access to general data, not necessarily with names and everything like that, but general data from the board who oversees the ACT or the SAT about the breakdown of SAT scores in a certain location or in a certain county or in a certain state, so on and so forth, depending on how small you want to get it. Even if they could get it for particular schools, that would be amazing. And then they could compare that person's SAT score with everybody else in that school. And then that could also be a more objective metric while still focusing in on certain localities rather than having it be a general nationwide battle for who has the highest SAT score. I think that could be a middle ground from what the author's talking about because they basically talk about how it's going to, it nationalizes the running for a certain position. It can discriminate or can have negative effects for minorities or underrepresented groups, whether that be in a particular state, city, school districts, so on and so forth. And that's why I think the comparing to the people around you, not just the people in the whole United States, could be very important. Because if you're getting a 1250 and the school district average is a 1000, that shows some aptitude. That shows that you're at least a little bit further ahead than your peers. That if the average is 1000, you are just a little bit higher than them for some reason or another. Maybe you work harder, maybe you're just smarter. But there is something special there that the college can cultivate 
and get ready for the wider world and prepare you when they give you or train you to get a degree. So let's jump to one of the quotes from the article. Quote, standardized test scores are a much better predictor of academic success than high school grades. Christina Paxson, the president of Brown University, recently wrote, Stuart Schmill, I'm pretty sure I pronounced his name correctly, the dean of admissions at MIT, one of the few schools that has reinstated its test requirement, told me, just getting straight A's is not enough information for us to know whether the students are going to succeed or not. So these are the pro arguments. These are the pro SAT arguments that the author is pulling out from a whole bunch of different sources. He has a lot of different quotes from different articles, professionals, things like that. So that's one side. Now let's go to another side. Quote, these findings lead to one central conclusion. Substituting one university admission exam for another benefits neither students nor schools. Colleges have a genuine, have, are genuinely committed to increasing the representation of African Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans must look into other alternatives. And yes, I definitely see where the author is coming from. Or I take that back, it's actually a uh, book from 2002 that he's quoting from. But I, I see the point that they're going for here, which is if these tests are not benefiting these groups, then maybe they shouldn't be used to analyze whether or not these different groups should get into college. Maybe there should be other metrics. Yes, maybe there should be other metrics. There should be other things that you evaluate because I do agree that raw test scores are not the only thing that matters. If your test scores in high school are low because you're looking after your grandparents or you're constantly involved with your church and doing service missions and that takes a lot of your time, then yes, those are other factors that need to be evaluated. And they're key traits that could be very useful in a college as well. So it needs to be a holistic picture. But the SAT and ACT gives you a baseline. If you are getting a 800 on your SAT score, I, is that even possible? What, whatever, what if you're getting the lowest number? Like you're just barely getting by on the SAT. That tells them something. It tells them, okay, well, let's look at his past. Oh, wait, he, he skipped school. It asks the colleges to make a baseline and then look into why that baseline exists. Now, if you got the lowest score on an SAT, and that's because you were constantly out of the country studying in other locations, you were doing different missions, so on and so forth, You looking after your family members, all of those things, They it provides a baseline and then it allows a context for the other things that happen. And then for the people who are looking after their grandmothers and so on and so forth and are able to also get a high SAT score, guess what? That is indicating to the colleges that, hey, this person is intelligent, they're putting in the hard work, and they're doing something else. You need that baseline. You need that meritocratic baseline in order to truly evaluate somebody on what they bring to colleges. If it's just all completely subjective, if everybody's saying, oh, well, I was volunteering for multiple hours, that's why my grades were so low, then great. That, that you're, you're volunteering. Good for you. But high school grades are different in different locations. Teachers grade on curves and some don't. So that is not standardized. That is hard to have a baseline that goes across the entire nation, which is where these colleges are recruiting from, the entire nation, if not around the world as well. So having a standardized test where the grading system is exactly the same, the questions for the most part are of the same difficulty, so on and so forth, it provides the baseline that you bounce off of. And that is the importance of the SAT. Because, like I said, 
And like the author even admits, some schools, some locales are not as well funded. They don't have as good of an education system. Their teachers aren't as well paid. Their teachers just aren't as inspired to care about the people. They grade in different ways. There are so many different factors that having a standardized test allows everybody to put their best foot forward. And yes, the author goes on to talk about anxiety. And as a person who faced anxiety when they took the SAT, I understand. But that is something that you have to get over because anxiety is a part of everyday life, especially in college. If your college experience is without anxiety, then I don't know what you're doing in college. You're either a genius and you can just fly right through or you're somebody who just doesn't care. So that anxiety is also baked into the standardized tests because it is also a measure of how well you do when taking tests, how you deal with anxiety. Are you prepared? Are you not prepared? Can you handle it? Which is exactly what college admissions people need to know for students coming into their school. They don't need somebody. They don't want somebody. They don't want to put a student through an experience that they're not ready for that creates over overly anxious people and then they drop out and they've wasted their money or because that looks bad on M- MIT. Oh, wait, our dropout rate this year was blah, blah, blah. But also, it's not good for the students. They don't want students to have to deal with that sort of anxiety and be hurt in that way. So I, I think that the author is over jumping over some things and you know jumping to their logical conclusion, which I agree. I, I'm also doing. I'm backfilling my logical conclusion as well. But I think I'm making more of a synthesis of some of the points they're making and some of the other points that other groups are making, which is, I think both of those things can be true. I think that there are underserved communities, but if you look at average SAT scores for that area and you have someone higher, that gives you a good understanding of what that person is doing. It also provides a baseline versus the rest of the nation if they line up with average, and you sometimes let average people into these different universities because of extracurriculars. Maybe you can consider that one highly. You think that they'll have a good success rate because those people that are average work hard. I don't know. There are lots of different ways to look at it. I don't have access to all that these colleges have, but there are stories, there are narratives here that each person is trying to relate to the colleges, and the SAT and ACT scores are a part of that story. They're part of the narrative. They provide more context, and that's exactly what colleges need. They don't need less information. They need more, and that information, when it's standardized, is a better metric of whether or not somebody is going to get through college, whether they're going to succeed, whether they're going to graduate, and whether or not they're going to put money back into the college because they have such a good career that they can. Uh, Not to be blunt, but that's also what colleges focus on. They want a return on the investment that they put into people. Let's be clear, the people are paying for that investment, but also they want to provide them with the ability to go out and make money so then they can return to the college later and be one of the large donors sending money back to their favorite college. So that's enough on that one. Let's jump to our final article. It'll be a really quick one, and it comes from the American Conservative. The headline reads, Will Illegal Aliens Choose the 2024 Republican Nominee in Arizona? And you may be thinking, whoa, 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 what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean? That's, that's not okay. And there's an interesting loophole here, which is there's a law saying illegal aliens cannot vote in state elections. They can't vote in uh, federal elections, but there's a tricky loophole where it's a federal qualification election or a statewide federal election, essentially, for the primary, which allows these different illegal uh, immigrants or aliens to actually vote in the primary. There's a certain loophole here that has been opened up by the new governor. 
Quote, the scheme was codified into law in December when Fonts introduced a new election procedures manual, including individuals who have failed to prove their U.S. citizenship to vote in federal races. Elon Musk brought the scandal to light in a, on January 9th in a tweet that said, quote, Arizona clearly states that no proof of citizenship is required for federal elections. State Democrats and their GOP establishment ally, Maricopa County recorder Stephen Richer, have tried to deflect by pointing out that Arizona is the only state which requires documented proof of citizenship in its voter registration form, something other states should adopt as well, end quote. So you can see here that they're, they're making a new loophole. They're changing some of the procedures. And I wonder if this is to affect the Republican primary or it's to affect the Democratic primary. Or maybe they're just, they don't really care. They're just trying to, you know, hedge the rules, change the rules a little bit overall. But I, I wonder whether the intent is to allow these people to vote for Democrats who are more in favor of allowing more immigrants into the state, or it's to uh, depower the Republicans who might put a president into the uh, office that would not necessarily be uh, the most friendly to illegal immigration. I don't honestly know. I don't know if it's that bald face of a scheme. I don't know if it's that hairbrain, that, you know, that big mustache twirl. I think it may be simply that these people are here now and they feel as though, Fonts feels as though they should be allowed to have some say in where their money is going because at the end of the day, they do put money into these local economies. They do, uh, they do take money out of them too, but they put money into these local economies. Sometimes they send them back in remittances and I'm not going to say whether that's, that's good because it's not, it's bad. And that is taking money out of the U S economy, but they do add to certain local economies, buying at certain stores and things like that. So Maybe he's making an argument along that lines that they contribute to the community. They should be able to determine the nature of how the community goes forward and that community being the larger United States. I think that's it could be a tenuous argument, but if I'm giving the benefit of the doubt, that could be what he's going for. But that's in neither here nor there. If you want to read that article or any of the other articles today, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. But before we go, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Woo Globe, and the headline reads, A playful pup indulges in snow day shenanigans without a worry in the world. So most of the United States has had uh, some snow recently, and now we're starting to see the benefits of it. We're starting to see the cute puppers and all the videos of the kids out there in the snow. And this one is no different. Quote, in a winter wonderland of canine delight, two pups discover the magic of freshly fallen snow in their backyard paradise. And just like I mentioned with the other articles, this article and video is also in the link in the description below the like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. And the Twitter handle at your daily flip where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. Um, a few of them have actually, I scheduled them on Twitter and then they failed for some reason. I wasn't diligent enough about keeping up with them. So one of them actually came out late on a Sunday, but there should always be two a week. And I always aim to have them out on Tuesday and Thursday. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say, stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>